Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're under that pressure, you come up with some uh, creative creative things to, to make it work. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharm and in this episode, we're speaking with property developer and managing director of Avonor, James Paver. As the leading player in the commercial and mixed-use development market, delivering a hugely successful $413 million office project from inception to completion. We hear the inspiring story of how he got there and much, much more. We delve into what a normal day looks like for Paver. These days, it's uh, a matter of trying to get the guys back to the office because of COVID. So, so today, I'm in the office uh, gearing gearing everything up and so starting getting the split shifts going next week, I think, So, which is good. But um, typically, uh, it's, it's a matter of um, working with my team across commercial and residential projects uh, in in Sydney principally at the moment and so um, at the moment a lot of planning work so there's a lot of meetings with stakeholders, a lot of meetings with clients um, and the end asset owners and, uh, and consultants and builders so there's a lot of that uh, collaboration and engagement and so there's that's, that's a big component of it and then um, the balance of it is, is spent um, with clients um, and, and trying to, to build some pipeline and, uh, and then obviously managing the business itself. So it's busy days, but uh, it's very, it's good fun. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an enormous impact all over the world and we find out how it's impacted Paver. We're still stemming ahead really. We've, uh, a couple of our, our major projects, uh, one of our major projects has a lot of overseas uh, stakeholders involved, principally consultant teams, so international design competition, resulted in a lot of, uh, so we've got consultants in uh, Europe, in the US, in Asia and in other parts of Australia and so we were already operating on on Zoom as a, as a platform uh, for collaboration and so we were already established for that. I suppose we would have done more in face, uh, you know, face-to-face involvement um, wasn't but we're still steaming it and that's a pre-committed office tower development so in terms of the COVID impact to the uh, market risk uh, that's been uh, minimized for the most part and um, in terms of the resi resi side uh, it's um, mostly mostly okay so there's some planning stuff at the moment um, so it's not particularly particularly impacted but I think the collaboration part and the I suppose team building part of it is going to be critical to ramp up again that's why we're, we're getting everyone you know back up and running next week. We learn more about his background in the area where he grew up and the school he went to. 
grew up in Sydney, grew up in Epping actually. So, um, and uh, but living in the in the CBD for for a number of years now um, in amongst it. Went to Kings in uh, North Parramatta, and um, and so I was pretty pretty close by. Yeah. Paver shares with us his journey after finishing school and what he decided to do straight after. I actually took a year off and went over to um, to Europe, and I taught English in Poland for six months. Believe it or not, it was. I didn't. Know, I, had, I had absolutely no money, so I worked a bit in the summer before. Worked in a um, in a pig factory in Liverpool for for a little bit and got some got some cash together and um, and then uh, went over there. And and because of that, I I um, while other people would go into London or whatever, Poland was a good place where you could be, be somewhere a bit different and um, then go weekends or whatever it is into the rest of. Europe. So that was good. And I traveled around for three months after that. Um, a few, a few adventures, worked on a yacht um, in Croatia on a luxury yacht owned by Greg Posh, uh, who owns Star, Star Trek trucks for a while and, um, and sort of got some money together and then traveled around Italy, Germany, France, uh, and uh, London. So that was good. And then after that, headed to, headed to uni and um, started in property economics. And so um, that was where I suppose the property journey journey started. But, um, but uh, and throughout that time, I was uh, working in, uh, I joined the reserves. And so doing officer training and uh, throughout, throughout university and a bit after. So um, that was good and, and started working for a, uh, for John Boyd, helping him on on uh, one six one Castle Ray Street, which is a, a uh, the ANZ Tower now on uh, on Castle Ray Street in Sydney. We find out more about John Boyd and his background. He's a, a, a private developer, so he that was, I suppose, where I got my first exposure to commercial development. So that was a it's a, I think a fifty five thousand square meter office tower on. On Castle Ray Street, um, that was um, delivered by Grocon and uh, and John Boyd had pieced that. Actually, I really liked it. He he he, um, he uh, had some interesting, um, you know, investment models as he was coming up, and he, he he sort of built some wealth and started accumulating these properties in the, in the CBD, and um, and then off the back of that, he put together the the um, a Freehills lease and, a, and an ANZ lease that um, underwrote the development of that project. Now he owns the owns the penthouse up the top of that, which is which is interesting. He went traveling early in his life, and we find out why he chose to go to Poland in particular. To be honest, I don't know. It was it was through this program where they, um, you know, you you go and teach English, and I'm not usually one to just go down the the well trodden you know standard path. I usually do. I mean, different, I suppose. So that was, I suppose, led me to to pick somewhere that was in in um, you know stone's throw from the rest of Europe, but could could be a bit weird, weird and different. After travelling all over Europe, he tells us the reason why he decided to come back to Australia. I was keen to rip in. It was always, I think, it was just go and get a bit more worldly and go out and you know make mistakes and have some fun and and then come back and and start. Um, you know, building a career, so I, I wanted to, to get into that, and so um, that's that's what I did. Um, 
and and I was excited to get into it, yeah. After coming back, he jumped straight into university and we learn about his interesting experience while studying. You do it in, in the holidays during university. I think it's one one weekend a month and uh, and then there's a few different uh, modules that you do but they might be a month long in the summer holidays and the rest of them are two weeks long and you go out and some of them are pretty interesting stories. Like I think on the third module, like in the middle of, you know, throughout uni, you know, in, in holidays you meant to go and get a rest, right? But then I went on this one and part of the training was doing these twelve hour missions back to back. So you there was eight 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 days worth of this. So you'd average one an hour sleep a night, some nights no sleep, some an hour or two hours. And um and so then you and so that was interesting. So then you come back to uni and you're pretty uh, you know, <laughs> exhausted, but it was definitely worth it. Gave me some leadership skills, gave me uh uh, I suppose, a um, greater understanding of people and how to work with people and how to work under pressure and high-intensity pressure, I suppose. Um, and then I, I worked through that. And um, But eventually I, I was um, I started working during uni at um, Investec Bank, being that the, the investment bank, um, and, and in the property team there, so the structured real estate finance team. And... So there was this point in time where I was uh, at university, finally at university, working in Vestec Bank in the Army still and started becoming a bit overwhelming because I was kind of doing these three pretense things. And so then um, Army was one of the first things to go uh, and um, I, and then uh, the then uni wrapped up and then I was into, into the banking world. Uh, so it was high net worth, uh, property development, investment banking, Many people struggle to find their ideal job straight after university. Pava explains how he was able to get himself into that position in investment banking. At uni, the, I was at UTS and they had a uh, few different scholarships that they um, would run and one of them, Investec Bank, would recruit from um, UTS. Well, that team would recruit from UTS um, and they essentially, I think it was something like that, they'll give you... Um, a few grand to do a three months work experience thing, and if you do all right, then they'll you'll carry on. And so um, I did that, and that was in two thousand and was that two thousand and ten, I think that was. And so it was still pretty rough in the banking sector post GFC, and so um, it was a time where they were going through a bit of a restructure. And so then I, but but during that phase though, it was. Um, there was still, you know, still deals getting done and a book that had to be managed and all of that sort of thing. So that was where, and it's sort of thrown the, in the deep end. You learn, you know, as much in your first week doing that as you do in your degree. We delve into how he met John Boyd and the job he had where he gained some valuable experience. My um, uncle had introduced me to him and. Um, had landed me that job um, and then that was just sort of a you know a junior assistant DM sort of role learning how offices work and how you know, the world works I suppose and really uh, that, that original one with John Boyd but then after that it was um, at Investec it was as, a, as an associate um, doing uh, property finance analysis and managing um, you know transactions through and managing existing uh, debt books and uh, and um, and mes books, and so 
Um, and through that though, it was very interesting. I, I really valued that time because what it showed me was it gave me excellent exposure to high net worth property developers and investors and across all sectors, across um, all geographies in Australia. So it meant that I could, I um, developed an understanding around how the whole deal works across all the sectors um, and um, exposed me to some really interesting and really, I suppose, um, successful individuals and let me analyze and look at their business models so that eventually I could start adopting them and applying them like I'm doing now. So, I mean, um, yeah, I can, I, I don't know, maybe I won't you need know, to talk through some of them, but some of the, some of the smart investment models that they would apply, which, you know, focused around, you know, minimizing, I mean, on one end of the scale was minimizing the amount of equity they're using by, you know, securing, you know, underperforming assets and, you know, increasing that performance, getting bank debt against it, using that um, extra debt to get DAs, generating extra value out of the DA, going back and getting more debt to generate, you know, to deliver the project. And out of a small seed, they've generated this big book of, of value, of profit, but also the retained asset that they'll maintain. So then there were these clients that would have these book of assets. So some of them, why this one client had left school at 13 years old, become a panel beater, and then, you know, 17, 18, sold Ford, Fords and Holdens, and then he started doing development with his brother, and now they've got a, a um, book of over $500 million worth of, of assets. Um, and when I was doing it, it was about it was just a bit under that, and he was only forty years old. So you see some of these models, and and some of the rest of them, like um, um, some of them were a bit more cookie cutter, you know, doing subdivisions. Some of them were, um, you know, how to structure joint ventures and how to um, piece it together. And that's, uh, there was a bit of that that I learned, I suppose, through that. It made me think, well, maybe I want to be on the other side of this fence rather than the bank here sitting there and having them brought. Um, and and I, I suppose it was around that time where I started forming a view of, well, um, I want to eventually own my own firm. Um, I don't. And before that, I'd always thought I would do want to own my own firm, but I didn't know what field it is I didn't particularly care to be honest of what 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 I would do as long as I sort of yeah I could start building my, my own you know uh, future and then I, I made a decision around that time uh, well do I, I if I want to do that do I want to go the funds management route and learn that skill set and then eventually supplement that with someone else's skill set in development or the other way around do I want to learn the on the, on the ground you know development skills and then um you know, and then build, you know, uh, uh, and then supplement that skill set with with third-party capital experience. So I thought, oh, well, now I've got some a bit of banking experience. I'll um, go the development route. And so it was it was a while after that that I started working at, um, I got a job at Leighton. I got, um, you know, through the closure of a lot of the banking institutions, I've invested, had a round of redundancy. So i um, snatch that opportunity and, um, and jump ship over to Leighton Properties. So that's where I've started building the, the, um, the development skill set, I suppose. Paver talks us through another example of a development that his client has in his development portfolio. 
particular one was pub, that particular one was pubs. Um, actually, I think it, it actually it actually started off as uh, as a post office was the first deal he did, I think. But then he built a book of, of pubs, and then um, just before the GFC, he had a book of um, you know, thirteen pubs or so. And then just before the um, the new smoking laws, he sold his book of pubs. Um, and and then the smoking laws came in, and then you know pub values dropped, and so he sort of cashed out at the top, and that kind of gave him some some cash to start rebuilding his book. <clears throat> um, and then so that that was except then it was pubs with resi attached um, to them as part of the developments. Some people struggle to get a foot into development side of property, but Paver details how it is possible to get into property development. I was always sort of. Um, Trying to think about some, I'll, I'll talk about myself in a, in a while about how we did. But um, for the others, I think um, some of it was a lot of it's through hustling with landowners, I suppose, and so being able to put put the deals together. I'm just thinking of a smart uh, developer out in Perth that was um, putting together, like a very very straightforward, but was putting together um, sites that had you know development capacity it was a matter of um he would he would um pre-sell the end product and increase uh, but use you it was simple products like 500 grand for a, an apartment or whatever and he would pre-sell them with um and you except say under an option option arrangement and say oh well, if you put in 250 grand now then um i'll give you a discount on the asset and then that cash you would use to put into the uh, acquisition of the site and the like. So, and then you know through that he would package up, you know the whole the the whole development, deliver the development, and and um and so these mum mum and dad investors or mum and dad owners would, I suppose, be participating in the development process, and he wouldn't have to use any of his own cash, but he would participate in the profit. So. It was, and then he, because he had a building book and a sales book um, himself, he would clip the ticket on the, the building margin and the sales, and um, and uh, obviously the profit on the development without using any money. So yeah, and that's a pretty standard. I mean, it's not not a standard um, one, but he, I just know that he executed that model really well. For listeners out there who don't know what book means in this term for development, can you sort of just elaborate and explain for them as well too? A book of this a pipeline of very, uh, numerous developments that are being um, you know delivered at any any given time. So usually associated with your, you know your balance sheet, how much, uh, how many projects or assets you have um, on your on your books. We discuss his time working at Leighton and the lead up to when he decided he wanted to start his own business. I went across to Leighton for. Um, uh, initially, principally for a commercial development in North Sydney, which was called 177 Pacific Highway, which is now the, the Vodafone Tower in, in North Sydney. So it was a 40,000 square metre A-grade office project, five-star Green Star and five-star Neighbours. Um, so it was a um, and it was an A-grade um, asset, and so. I came into that before commencement in the in the establishment phase, I suppose, and the it was a um, it's essentially holy grail of of you know commercial development um, 
for a developer, I suppose, in the sense that um, it was a pre-lease, pre-sale um, project. So Leighton, um, we, we essentially secured an option over, over the existing site and um, and had a 30,000 square metre pre-commitment uh, for the uh, a lease pre-commitment. And so with that, it means that you, you uh, essentially can underwrite the development with that fixed cash flow that is going to be available to whoever owns the building. And so um, we secured, you know, the, the building contract with um, CPB and then packaged that up and then pre-sold that package to a group out of Singapore called Suntech, Suntech REIT. And so, um, and they're, they're a passive fund, they don't take development risk and the deal essentially was that um, they will fund um, our initial um, establishment costs and 100% of the delivery costs, including our profit. And then on completion, they get the keys to an asset that is fully leased. And so as a developer, we had to take on the development risk. And so we would pass that down to the, the building contractor for the, um, for the actual delivery risk. The residual risk for us then was the leasing. We had a 30,000 square metre pre-commit, so there was 10,000 square metres of vacant space. And then, um, for, and then as we were delivering it, um, <laughs> the, it was in 2014, um, so the tenant, the leasing market was weak and incentives were high. And so we had to, um, we had to, so the, the pre-commit, which was late, it was Simic Group, they they contracted their headcount. So they only needed 8,000 square metres now. So it, the, the job of now over over the balance of the project, year and a half, I, I had to lease the balance of the 32,000 square metres of vacant space. <laughs> and and if we didn't, and if we didn't, then there would there was a rent guarantee over all of that space, which would amount to you know in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, um, and so, the, I embarked on that process, and then progressively leased to Vodafone, Jacobs. Um, CBRE, Cisco, Pepper, and Objective, and NBN, and and then the NBN lease, which was the last one, I cut on the day before practical completion. So it was a, so we got there in the end, and it was and it's a great project. So How long did that process take you to find these tenants? It was a bit of a hunt. So we had we had CBRE on our as our um, leasing agent, but it was. Um, so from 2014, we were into the leasing process for the balance of space, and then I think through the course of 2015, I closed the um, most of the deals, and then the fit out started happening in 2016. And so throughout, yeah, it was about a year that I did most of those deals. And you kind of got to be creative with the what you've got at hand. So because there was pre-agreed structures with the end owner who was receiving the asset, they. Um, playing tricks with the, the incentives to be able to work out, okay, well, if we generate enough income out of the sign, so we might have allowed a particular amount of money for the Vodafone signage income there, and then we, we do a lease with them for that at a different number or whatever it is, then that money can generate enough revenue out of the end owner to then feed back into the, um, the tenant's um, uh, base rent, I suppose. And so 
um, there was a few things like that going on to try and make make it stack. But um, I suppose when you're under that pressure, you come up with some uh, you know, creative creative things to, to make it work. We find out how he was able to pick up all of this in such a short span of time. I suppose in the first instance, I had really good people around me. So I think that, so now, so at Avenor, uh, my business partner, Pete Clemisher, he was at the time at Leighton as well, working on the same project. Um, but he had, he left early. He left in 2014 before these were doing. But around the same time, Steve Rayleigh, who was the national head of leasing at, at Leighton, he was still there. So his role was winding down. But so I suppose in the first instance, I, you know, um, gather as much, you know, as I could from them um, to help help me on that journey. And then so that was one part of it, having the right people around. So now Steve works with Avenor as well. Um, so there was that. But then the other one is feel I have a, uh, I'm a very determined person. I suppose. <laughs> I've got high ambitions and I, I work pretty hard. So I, and I enjoyed it. So I was very excited to be able to, um, you know, learn all this stuff with knowing that the end goal was going to be I'm going to go and do this stuff myself. And so models like that where you're putting in a couple of mil and making 60 out of it um, is, is um, and I suppose enough of a, a carrot to want to learn it pretty quickly. We delve into his property development journey and we find out whether he's faced any challenges along the way. To be honest, it's... It pains me to say it, but it's yet to come, <laughs> I think. So, that's not me saying I don't, I don't make it. I, I think because I'm still quite young, I, I'm fully aware that there is going to be stuff that happens. I think where I think I'm, we, we do take a lot of care and put a lot of effort into minimising risk generally. And so we don't just go for any deal and um, deal flow, deal volume, I suppose, isn't our strategy deal you know accuracy is is more our strategy so um being able to take our time select the right deal select the right um approach and then uh not overcommit ourselves to a level that means that um you know we're exposed to something that you know we can't withstand so i suppose in doing that we minimize our risk one of our projects at the moment, an example of that, I suppose, one of our projects at the moment is a, is a, a residential tower development in, in North Sydney, Walker Street. And so that deal has been a slow burn. We started amalgamating individual units in 2016-17 and then we've, we've amassed a 2,500 square metre site and done a deal with the next adjoining owners to create a 4,000 square metre site and we've now got state approval for a, a 30 story tower so so it's it's a big you know it's a big um you know it's a success in that um we've now got approval but there were definitely moments through that journey where you feel like you've just burnt a lot of money on a site that's not going to come together and so there was definitely moments through that where the risk risk was high um but i suppose persistence and um, and the way that we set up those deals in the first instance meant that we minimised the risk of it not, not coming on us. Paver talks us through some of the challenges that he faced to get these units to come together. There's no residential tower sites in the North Sydney CBD. It's, they are very, very strict on maintaining the commercial core. And so this is the only 
uh, R4 high density residential site in the city, in the city, uh, North Sydney CBD, and it's sort of it's on the ring of freeway, and oh, sorry, it's not. It's just it's next to the ring of freeway, and so it'll have you know permanent uninterrupted views of Sydney Harbour and the Opera House and the Heads, um, and so it's a it'll be a very highly sought after you know. Um, uh, product once once it comes online, and so I think part of that meant that the own the initial landowners, um, the you know people who own the units, they uh, weren't going to move unless it's um, it was outright buying essentially. And so to do that, we you know mounted a war chest and um, had to had to go in and, and start you know working through each each unit. We find out about his financial situation at the time and how much he was able to accumulate. We bought twenty four, bought twenty four units, um, and and uh, and then came to an arrangement with the adjoining. You know, there's three more lots to our to our north, and so I think for a planning outcome, it's a good outcome to have. So these are the only undevelopable, sorry, undeveloped sites or developable lots in that area, and so. Originally, we were just going to go with ours, and those would have been a separate development that needs to be pursued. But uh, we came to an arrangement with the states, essentially saying, oh, we'll, we'll, "We'll put the planning across theirs as well, so that we all participate in uplift, and and those, and we can redevelop the whole precinct, so that it's there's no chance of isolation or anything." Paver details what his initial vision was for their area. It's a very obvious one. Around next door is a 22-story resi tower. Over the road is another 23-story resi tower. And around the corner, council's rezoning its own car park to be a 60-story tower. And around and the metro station is 200 meters away. That's going in at whatever that is, 50 stories. And then the next one down, uh, Winton's delivering the um, Denison Street, which is uh, um, you know. 40-something stories. Um, Dex has just finished there. 100 Mount Street, which is similar height. So there's, and and the North Sydney CBD, the council has um, lifted the height across the whole CBD. So there was this huge uplift. These are these little red, red-roofed um, apartment uh, apartments that were built 80 years ago, and they're kind of falling down and the like. And so, and it's in the CBD. So we. Um, it actually, we started off on it when I was still wrapping up the Vodafone tower, hunting around for what's next and we started and so as that was coming off, I started turning our attention to that. Getting into development means that you'll need to invest your own capital into it but the way the deal is structured can help you immensely. So, I suppose that's one example and then one one other one that I suppose it's not just, a, it wasn't necessarily about it. Another one that's been a, a slow burn but has been successful of late is um, is our approach. So we um, in 2014 we started having having a go at um, so Google was in the market as a tenant and and we um, approached the state government and said oh we want to put a tech precinct together um, with for Google and um, and we're going to do it at Glebe Island and so. Um, we had a consortium of John Holland and MTR who run the Northwest Metro um, Rail, and um, we had, uh, um, and then Leighton we were still at at the time, and and Google, and and we started doing that together. But Leighton 
group went through a restructure, late properties closed. And so um, Google started off again with then lease and the state took that asset to market. So that was the first crack at a tech precinct. And then around the same time, Atlassian um, were um, looking to um, where, where they could uh, potentially anchor a tech precinct and, and we were looking at Australian Technology Park with, with, with them. And then at the same time, uh, or similar time, the state government was out with, uh, with uh, White Bay for um, the next round of tech, pre- tech and innovation precincts at White Bay. So that didn't go ahead. And so we've been involved in that world for a while. And, and it, I suppose in terms of, um, you know, things not coming off, that for a number of years was just not happening for us. We were having a few cracks, a few false starts with different capital partners, with different tenants. And um, and so we bid pretty hard for, for White Bay with some capital out of Singapore. And then Multiplex came in as our delivery partner. Um, Initially, and then then uh, that that process wrapped up for the open, you know, for, for the market. And then, um, but we worked really hard with Atlassian, and then eventually, and, and uh, you might have seen in the in the press over the last couple of years that now we've anchored, we've secured a site at Central Station, and we've um, we're anchoring a a, uh, a new tech and innovation precinct at at Central Station in Sydney, and so. Um, and so to uh, like similar to the Walker Street thing is this this you know roller coaster of you're putting in a lot of energy in over a longer period of time and then um, but then you work your way out of those risk positions into a position where then they start you know the um, some of the you start kicking some goals. Having to invest your own capital into deals might make it tough when it comes to other expenses. So we find out how Paver is able to balance everything. I suppose part of it, when we kicked off at first, we didn't have um, much of our own balance sheet. It was doing um, these sorts of structured things where we essentially bring the institutional uh, knowledge of a tier one development firm being latent properties and then we white label that team because we, we had a number of people from the latent team that Pete and I brought into our team and then we started building out the team around us and so we would white label that into non-development firms. So um, landowners who don't want to give up their asset or want to retain an asset on completion but don't have the development expertise, we will white label in and deploy our our skills for them and then participate in the profit or participate in whatever it is. So there's there's that sort of thing. and then other ones is, um, I suppose, you know, cash flow is, is uh, which is what you've identified, I suppose, is, is critical to it all. So we um, landed a couple of, we landed a uh, um, $1.1 billion um, hospital project in Brisbane, which is Hurston Quarter, run by Australian Unity. And so they they um, uh, were one of our first major projects which we started working on with them. And so I think there was a lot of that service-based Revenue that um, in our in, in establishing some of these, and then in that we would structure some um, success fees, and so it would essentially be uh, in exchange for deploying our, I suppose, IP um, on behalf of these firms. We would we would structure in uh, which we could do in a particular market called Central Station, 
we could deploy that across a number of sites down the central station with a number of parties and we would say, okay, well, if we partner with this group, then we'll participate and so and then we're committed to that site and that. So I suppose that's that's how we we um, kicked it off and then that gave us a bit more firepower to be able to um, take a bit more risk, I suppose. It has been an interesting journey for him and we hear about the moment where everything just clicked for him. It's a tough one. I suppose... I feel like I'm about I'm I'm coming into a bit of a moment around that at the moment. Um, the next 12 months is going to be quite formative. Some of our revenues will will be dropping over the next next 12 months, um, but we'll, we'll be I suppose coming in over the next 12 months, which will has turned my mind to the next strategic phase of our growth. And so uh, I'm starting to build some more. Um, governance structures, some more, uh, bring some more skill sets in so that I can posture ourselves for um, raising capital, deploying capital, deploying our own balance sheet um, on a bigger scale. And so I think um, the aha moment is, I suppose, the last four years has been a lot of grind and a lot of, um, like I was saying, sweat equity and then now, as I see the opportunity that comes from some of this, some of this, you know, having some balance sheet deploy, it kind of makes me think, oh, that's that is absolutely <laughs> a ticket towards opening up a whole lot of opportunity that before I felt like wheels are spinning a lot. Now I can start saying. Uh, so the, the way that I'm thinking at the moment is, is a bit different, I suppose, um, and I suppose that's that's an example. We learn about one of the strong motivating factors was early on in his property journey. When I was choosing to go and do property economics, I was just at a bit of a loss, to be honest, about what the options were at hand. I think part of it, I didn't want to do something that was just a placeholder um, standard thing. In fact, that's probably a common theme across what a lot of what I do. I don't, I don't buy into just standard, run-of-the-mill, you know, um, living i suppose or and i'd heard i'd heard a bit i, I think i just um heard from um uh, other people that property is good fun um i didn't particularly know what it was or how it works and that i knew that you could make money out of it and i knew that um and then i suppose part of part of the decision making around the, the decision to go from banking to development that's probably part of what i can probably talk to is that um, when I was when I was at uni, uh, or when I was when you, in investment banking, you've got a huge amount of people that have ended up there because they've done commerce law degrees and they're hyper competitive, and you know they're at, at, um, at school they're so they're highly intelligent people, and um, and they're working really long hours, and you know they make a particular amount of money, and they're they're in a structured. Um, career progression that um, you are at the at the mercy of the you know control of a lot of other you know stakeholders and senior stakeholders that can probably influence your your success or not property I kind of formed this view right or rather wrong at the time that um, you're not in a space where it was particularly in I suppose the the early days of it or in, uh, you're not in a space where there is 
hyper-competitive commerce law guys who have got 99 or, you know, their high 90s UAIs and and are sitting at their desk and they're, and so the if and so I felt well, um, but you can still make just as much, if not more, money, and you can, um, I suppose, work less if you work smartly. So book smart versus street smart. You know, you, if you're street smart, you don't necessarily have to have all these qualifications and degrees and everything to get into property development because it's about relationships. It's about hustle it's about persistence you know grinding the hard work that kind of stuff yeah so i saw some of those clients at investing right and like a bunch of them had never gone to uni some of them like that guy was mentioning you left school early um and um some of them uh were and so then when you and so it's not about it's not about i suppose that it's not a competitive industry it's a really competitive industry obviously like every man and his dog know about property and, and are an expert in property because they own a property and it's and so it's not that you get away from that but I think it's that um, I was doing a lot of long hours in Investec and um, I was made redundant there <clears throat> and then at Leighton Properties it was the same it was um, working really long hours and um, in an institution and and um, and then they because of you know structural decisions that were made at a higher level they they decided to restructure and then I managed to you know, strike a, an arrangement that, that worked well um, that was part of a redundancy. And so then that was twice and I was like, well, <laughs> I'm going to take it in my own hands and um, do what I suppose I was always wanting to do and, um, and, and start, you know, putting, putting things together. Um, and that's, I suppose, where, where the thinking came from. We talk about the idea of mentorship and his experience with people throughout his journey that can provide assistance. I was lucky enough. Um, so at Investec Bank, David Gonski was the chairman, um, and and so when I was setting up Avenor, I, I and I'd, I'd reached out to him a couple of times before, and and then then I just went and caught up with him, and um, I suppose being able to just have chat have have a chat with someone like that gives you a really good insight into your, I suppose, potential in business. Uh, and so, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, uh, say that he's sort of a mentor because I didn't, it's not like an ongoing thing. But at the moment, that's something that I've identified is, is something I want to build on. So I've started the process a couple of months ago, putting an advisory board together for Avenal. So speaking with some, um, I suppose, executives and managing directors that I've come across over the years I've started to do just to start piecing together who the right people are to to um, put some strategic um, you know input into the into the firm and then some I suppose governance um, oversight into the firm and so um, speaking with a few people about that um, and so yeah hopefully hopefully that comes comes along. Paver shares some of his best book recommendations along with any other resources that might be helpful. I've just started, I've kicked off some um, <clears throat> business coaching at the moment as part of this, like I was saying, next 12 months strategic growth is we've got a, you know, business coaching and advisory board and some new hires as part of that. But one of the ones that I've just started listening to is The Road Less Stupid. 
Yeah, I've, I've literally over the last couple of weeks I've been um, ripping into it and it's um, essentially exploring this concept of how um, intelligent investors, and this actually rings true for those clients from Investec where a bunch of those people had been bankrupt once at least but sometimes a couple of times and so the role of stupid is about this this concept where of, of avoiding dumb tax which is where as a result of poor decision making um, you make a loss and so um, what is it that you can do to minimize you know still you know maintain you know your your revenue growth but minimize the risk of loss by um, avoiding stupid decisions. <laughs> and so I know the, the chapter I was, I was on last night is talking about thinking time. And so they're talking about having a particular um, uh, period in each day, a period of time in each day, a short period where you just sit and think about the big issues and actually accurately identify problems that need resolving and then come up with a strategy to solve them. I haven't started yet because I only did that yesterday, but it was interesting. We find out the advice that he would give to a younger version of himself. Yeah, I suppose I'd say, say do what you're doing. I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of, really enjoying enjoying what what um what I'm working on, I suppose. Um, and it's it's definitely a lot of hard work, but I think being able to find the find the right balance in that work. I think in the early days, actually, if I could talk about the early days a bit, I think working a bit smarter rather than harder um, could have could have helped. A lot of long hours, late nights, slogging away, trying to work through it. Um, and then in hindsight, there wasn't many other people doing that. <laughs> so maybe I could have shared the load a bit, um, I suppose. And then, uh, and, and yeah, and then surrounding yourself with the right people. He shares with us some of the goals that he's most excited about achieving in the near future. Definitely about the build, building the firm and building the um, the capacity of the firm for the for the uh, funds management component, or I suppose the, um, being able to raise more capital and deploy more capital, I suppose, and uh, and definitely building the team to uh, uh, I suppose supplement that skill set into the team um, is definitely something that's exciting. Um, and then if I were to go to the end of that five years, definitely looking forward to having completed some major projects. So that um, Atlassian Tower Essential is like a 70,000 square metre office tower, which, you know, is part of that tech precinct. It's been on, on a very long journey. And so in five years, that'll be complete. And so it'll be good to be able to you know, stand here and, and look at that and, um, you know, see it as, as one of the most sustainable buildings in the world. I think that would be pretty exciting. Yeah. So the last question I have for you is how much of your success is due to your skill, intelligence and hard work and how much of it is because of luck? Uh, I would say uh, luck. Um, lucky, uh, the luck component of it is that, that I was, you know, born into a, you know, good family and, and have a, a good set of um you know, morals and, and, and surroundings. So I'm definitely very grateful for that and I did nothing to deserve that part of it. Um, but, you know, since then though, um, I definitely attribute it to a lot of, you know, maybe 80% of it to, to the hard work component. The luck component of it might be that um, the I think the redundancies that 
kind of force you on, force you to make a decision. If if they didn't happen or they kicked down the road, then who knows what what might have happened? Um, might be in a different firm or might have might have just wanted the golden handcuffs might have been put on or it would have been too hard to get away. And so being able to um, to to get that nudge, I suppose, is, is definitely help. But um, it's taken a lot of hard work, and it will continue to take a lot of hard work. That's for sure. Thank you to James Paver, our guest on this episode of Property Invest Story. If you want to hear more about his journey and get a copy of the show notes on the website, head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash notes. The show notes will give you the inside scoop on the little gold nuggets of wisdom all our guests share from their backstory and all their overall strategies and philosophies. Plus, you'll get a copy of the advice broken down and shared in a quick and easy to consume format. Just head over to propertyinvestory.com forward slash notes and download it today. Thanks for listening.